I'd love for you all to turn in your Bibles uh, to 1 Peter. Uh, we're um, in the letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to a number of churches. And here's the strange thing. He wrote to churches, some of which were positioned around what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, when you see Asia being referred to in the New Testament, it's talking about Turkey. And at the time, uh, some of the earliest church plants flourished there, and Christianity spread there, and Christianity was dominant there. And um, this is why when you go to Turkey today, if you went to Istanbul, you would see the relics of that history. You'd see buildings like the Hagia Sophia, which is, was a great cathedral to the glory of God. And um, all of that has changed, of course. But um, all of that has changed. But which underlines in many ways the message, the urgent message of this letter that we're looking at. That Peter was describing the Christians, the believers, as exiles in a foreign land. Uh, they were a minority at the time he wrote. And that would form the way they thought about themselves, about their response to the culture in which they lived. And we're, we're taking up this theme over these weeks because it seems to me, and I'm not alone in this, but it seems to me that as Christians in the Western world, we're increasingly feeling the pinch of this identity that we, um, we're exiles in the world, in a foreign world. Our home is elsewhere. We belong with Christ. But position here as we are, God has purpose for us within the world, that he's doing something in and through us even if we don't have power, or even if we are not well regarded, or whatever the experiences of Christians. And we're taking up this theme. And today we're going to speak about meekness in exile, which has to do with an extraordinarily important posture that Christians hold in terms of their relationship to the systems and the power systems of the world in which we live which is going to be incredibly vital and important to many of you as you navigate what it means to live in a broken world in the years to come and as you encounter more of that brokenness. So let's read um, from ch chapter 2, verse 13. It's page 1766 in the church Bibles, if you have one of those. And I want to read to you to the end of that chapter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, it says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants or household slaves, he says, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, 
Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I want to pray as we start. Lord Jesus, our perspective on this life is easily warped by the priorities that we feel in the moment for our comfort now, for our joy now. And Lord, we need more than ever to be mindful of the things of God. To understand that we are first and foremost believers in Christ. That you call us to holiness above all. Teach us how to embody a Christ-like mind in the world in which we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin um, getting into the subject by just thinking of it like this. When you become a Christian, something radical happens in terms of your understanding of who you are, you transition into a new identity. And uh, the first mark of that for the believer is baptism. We'll be baptizing some people today. And the first mark of this new identity is that you are baptized, at which point you renounce the old life and you say, I follow Jesus. I'm a servant of Christ. The most important thing about me is that I am a Christian. And then on becoming a Christian in this way, on being baptized into the name of Jesus, which is the mark of becoming part of his worldwide church, then you begin to experience some of the benefits of that. You might experience the fact that Christ says that you're free now. You know, it says in John 8 that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You you thought that being a believer or following God would mean that you would be you'd be shackled and you'd be burdened with rules. And what it means rather when you become a Christian is to experience a new liberty like you've never known before. Your heart feels free. You feel joyful. You're free from all the, the, the stuff which pulled you back and held you down. I think it was St. Augustine who said, um, love God and do what you want. That's the Christian ethic. Because when you love God, doing what you want is embodying Christ-likeness. Love God and do what you want. That's freedom in the Christian mind. You begin to feel that you're free. Then you begin to feel um, a new sense of dignity being among the people of God. Now, you've got to bear in mind, of course, that many people, um, as we'll talk about, were, were slaves in the ancient world. But when they became Christians, they were sons. Which meant that the insecurities that they might have felt internally and the prejudice that they experienced externally that put, sort of put them in their place, none of that existed in the church or it was not meant to You step into this new life and another thing you experience is just the wonder of following a savior who you can honor, love, and respect because he's worthy of it in contrast with the leaders that we encounter in this world, it would seem. So it raises this huge problem. You put yourself in the mind of a first century Christian living in dark and corrupt systems and entering into the church and experiencing brotherhood. The question was, well, how do you go back? How do you go back into the world now that you've known all the awesome benefits of being one of Christ's people? How do you go back into the world and with what mind do you do that? Now, 
I've told you guys a story once before, I won't go through it all, but of the one time when, by some accident of fortune, we ended up flying business class on an American Airlines flight. And the weird thing, my wife doesn't feel like this, the weird thing about me is that my overriding sensation was I do not belong here. I was, I was, I don't know what it says about me as a person, but I walked in there and I felt a deep sense of being out of place. Uh, that soon gave way when they gave me some bourbon and uh, <laughs> fed me with the silver crockery. And, you know, by the end of the flight, you, you take on a certain swagger. You know, I'm, I'm in business class now. And the great question is, having experienced that, how do you then go back to the place where you are, where you, you have to put up with the crying baby, sometimes it was ours, where you have to kind of, you know, where it's just the chaos, the no leg room. How do you go back to all of that, having experienced something better? And that was the, that was the problem for Christians living, uh, having experienced the goodness of God in their lives, becoming Christian from whatever background they come. How do you go back? Now, as I mentioned to you, something like a third of the Roman Empire were slaves, that number is extraordinary, isn't it? Like the number of people in, in the ancient world who were slaves. And when they entered into church on a Sunday, they experienced brotherhood. They could worship alongside a senator and have respect. Their voice would be heard if they felt like, you know, in the spirit they had something to share as the early church was their practice. They would be given as much weight as the the person of power stood next to them. And yet when they left the building, they had to resume their life in which they experienced injustices and frustrations and pains in the world because they're living in a broken world. And how do you experience that? How do you live in that in a, in a Christ-like way? That was the pressing question. Now, the natural thing for Christians to think is, and that they may have thought is, well, let's go and change the world. Christ's ways are better, so let's change the world. Let's make the world follow Christ's ways. And into this context, Peter writes, and he gives this unbelievably radical, challenging call to the Christians when he says to them that you are not called to rebellion, you're not called to protest, you're not called even to anger, but he keeps telling them you are called to submission. I think this is a message the church has forgotten. He says it in numerous ways. Right at the start, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That is an absolute command. He says in verse 17, honor everyone. Or it means probably in modern language we think of respect. Respect everyone. Love the brotherhood, which is a church. Fear God, absolutely. Honor the emperor. Nero. The next verse, he says to servants or these household slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. I mean, you guys may have experienced what it's like to live in a world of, of difficult and unfair authority figures around you, but that's a boss or a lecturer or whatever it is, even parents. And he's saying to them, listen, your heart is what's at stake here. Now, this was a huge problem back then. As I mentioned to you, the, the emperor was Nero. Nero, not so far away from the time that this was written, began to persecute the church of God. 
There was a great fire that started in Rome, and people were suspicious that it was him who'd started it to kind of deflect from some of his problems. And uh, as the spotlight began to turn on Nero, the people saying, the emperor did this, the emperor did this. What Nero did was he, he then began to turn the spotlight on this, this new sect, the Christians. And as persecution became an official policy, it spread from Rome throughout the world that the Christians were being accused of all kinds of stuff and were being maligned and treated unjustly. They were accused of weird stuff as well, of having these weird cultish practices and just basically misunderstood. And not only that, but you know, the, Nero was a man of, of disrespectable morality in his personal life. And here's Peter saying, listen, you or Christians are called to honor this man, to respect this man. You think, imagine how difficult that was for a Christian in the first century. Not only for normal Christians, but especially for slaves. These guys were were the property of their masters, which meant that if the master chose to give them a beating for whatever reason he concocted, no one would question him. This is what Peter's talking about. He knew that when they came to church on a Sunday and they were hearing his letter read out, some of them had experienced that that week. They'd been beaten by their masters or worse. And Peter's saying, how do you respond to this? What should your heart posture be in a world of injustice now that you are followers of Christ? Now, one of the things that you might strike you as a question here is, well, does this have any relevance for us given the fact that we are not in that system? And I want to say to you, I think it is, I think it's actually an urgent question for Christians to figure out our posture in the world in which we live for a few reasons. The first is this, the world's changing. The world is changing. This week I read this amazing book, um, Evangelism as Exiles by Elliot Clark. I absolutely recommend it. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. Uh, Also written by a man who was a missionary in the Middle East and uh, has a, a, a perspective on what it's like to be a minority within a majority culture, therefore. But he says this, the world is changing in the West. He says, we all know a seismic cultural shift is taking place in our land. The social pressures crashing against Christians and Christianity are on the rise and aren't likely to recede for some time. The West is fast becoming post-Christian, post-truth, and perhaps even post-tolerant. Our exile and persecution doesn't seem any longer to be a question of if or even when, but how far. How far will we slide? How much will we lose? How long will it last? And while those are all reasonable questions, the more pressing and biblical question is this, how will the church respond? I think Christians who aren't prepared for this experience will struggle in the years to come. The world's changing. Another reason why I think it's so vital for us is because we live in the age of democracy and the age of protest. It's there in the name, isn't it, of one of the great protest movements that's arisen in the last couple of years, Extinction Rebellion. And the, the default assumption is, of course, rebellion is our right. And Christians can adopt that mentality and think that we're here to fight for our, the experiences, against the experiences of injustice that we experience. And I want, to question, I want to question whether that's a godly mentality. I want to question whether the Bible gives us permission to have that mind, to have that mentality, to have that heart. Many of you have experienced injustice. I know some of your stories. This world is broken. 
And yet, the Bible says, the meek shall inherit the earth. Why are we called to this posture of meekness, of submission, even of surrender, it would seem, in a world that is hostile to Christ? I want to give you a few reasons that arise out of this passage. Maybe pressing for you on a very personal note, how do you relate to family? It may be to do with how you relate at work, but it may be something bigger than that. We live in a corrupt system, don't we, of injustice. Now, I want to give you a few reasons why I think the New Testament tells us that this is the default posture of the Christian. Here's the first. Because it guards the reputation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, listen, on the one hand, Christ and his followers will always have the problem of false accusations being attached to us. Jesus experienced it, didn't he, when he was on trial. He was called a blasphemer. They thought that they they drummed up false accusers to come and, 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 and drum up charges so that they could crucify him. When Paul was on his missionary journeys, one of the things that he encountered was unfair persecution for things that he wasn't doing. You know, when he was in Ephesus in Turkey, he was, there was a riot that began to arise in the city because they were saying that he was damaging the business of the idol makers, which, you know, it's hilarious in one sense. You think if you're making an idol, then clearly it's not God anyway. So you kind of seen behind the curtain, haven't you? But these guys were up in arms. There was a riot breaking out and he was being falsely accused. He was beaten by the, own, the religious authorities of the Jewish Sanhedrin. These things happen to him unjustly and unfairly. These things happen. And the question, one question is, why do false accusations follow Christians? And I think the answer is this. Because when you become a Christian, when you get baptized, you say Jesus is Lord. Which is to say, he has my allegiance above all. And that's a threat. It's a posture which has elicited fear in the hearts of corrupt leadership in the world ever since. This is why Christians experience these kind of persecutions. You know, why is it that in communist Russia, for example, the church began to be stamped out? In Maoist China as well, there was only a, a certain allowed state version of the church allowed. Why? The answer is because the gospel is a call to surrender to the lordship of Jesus as the highest authority in your life. And people don't understand that. They don't understand that. And so it brings about this conflict. Well, we can't trust the Christians then, can we? Now, Peter is interested in this. And what he says is, I should say, by the way, Christians are never called to be a threat to the governments under which they live. But the gospel is a threat. Because it changes hearts. Jesus described it as being like leaven in the batch of dough. The more that the gospel spreads, the more that people know about this, the more they know about the freedom that there is in the Christ. It changes society. So it's right to be afraid of the Christians in one sense, but not for the reasons that you think you should be afraid. Not because they're likely to rise up. Now, given the fact that we face false accusation in the world, a misunderstanding of who we are, here's Peter's concern. His concern is this. There should never be a valid reason to accuse the Christians. Don't give them a reason to think that we are the danger that they think we are. 
That's why it starts this, this passage in verse 13 by saying this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the emperor, a supreme, or to governors are sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We can't possibly stop the false accusations and the misunderstanding. But we can show by the deep respect that we have for the people that God himself has put over us in life, that their fears are groundless. Now this, I, you know, conversations I've had over the years, I realize this does not sit comfortably with Christians. It doesn't sit comfortably with us because, you know, when you enter the Christian life, you experience the goodness of the teachings of Jesus. You suddenly see what righteousness is. And then from that stance, you look back at the world and you think there's so much that needs to change. There's so much that's not right. And it can turn you into a critic, can't it? Another thing, of course, is that, as I mentioned at the beginning, when you submit to Jesus, you, you can begin to feel like the authorities in this world have no claim on you. My parents can't tell me what to do. My boss can't tell me what to do. The government has no right to tell me what to do because I follow Jesus. And Peter's saying, no, no, you've misunderstood this. Peter's emphatic. He says in verse 16, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. He says to Christians who think that they can adopt that posture of rebellion, he says, no, that's evil. It's evil because it brings Christ's name into disrepute. Because I think, and listen, this is a controversial statement, but I'm going to say it. I think our primary call is not to reform the world, but to preach Christ. A lot of the problems that we've landed in as Christians in the West is because we thought our call was to reform the world. I think God's capable of doing that. I think we're called to preach Christ. And this is why it's tragic when Christians prove their critics right by adopting the posture of, of, being, of being those seditious people. I was in, this, in this book by Elliot Clark, he uses an example of how you use your social media. This is where it really lands. This is where it comes home to us, right? He says, on social media, we parade our views on any number of issues with casual indignity. After all, We won't ever see half the people who read out tweets. But we also won't know half the disrepute we bring to Jesus' name. And he commends what he calls the virtue of silence, which is to say sometimes we just have to keep our mouths closed. The question that might be in your mind at this point is, won't this just lead to more suffering and injustice for Christians? And I think the answer is, well, yes, in the short term it can do. Because this is the challenge of living in exile. This is the challenge of wearing Christ's name in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to Christ. But I think what Peter's telling us here is this. First of all, as Christians, we should be willing to suffer any amount of indignity for the sake of Christ. 
and to guard the name of Christ in our lives. Be subject, he says, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. I don't know if that's settled in your heart just yet, what that means. What a radical posture of honor and respect and humility that means to people you don't necessarily like, who you don't think are right, who you know are wrong. Be subject, he says, for the sake of Christ. Do it for him. Know that you're serving Jesus when you submit to the people and authorities he's put around you. And by the way, I, sh- I want to add here, by the way, in view of the fact that this brings out from us all kinds of questions, well, doesn't this mean that we just, we'll just be trodden on? Doesn't it mean we'll be crushed? Doesn't it mean that we'll be persecuted and marginalized and all the rest of it? Listen, the Bible shows us again and again in so many stories through the Scriptures the power, the radical power of a submissive posture to change the world. I think about the story of Joseph. Do you know the story of Joseph? Joseph experienced one injustice after another. First of all, at the hands of his brothers, sold into slavery. Then having to serve in the house of Potiphar, humbly serving in the house of Potiphar, yet being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife that he was trying to rape her when he wasn't. And so he ends up in jail. Then in jail, he rises up as a man of power in jail, but he's also then overlooked as an injustice. He should have been brought out of jail earlier, if you know the story, yet he's overlooked, yet he continues to serve faithfully. Eventually, he arrives as the right-hand man to Pharaoh himself by the providence of God. Injustice after injustice, he adopts this posture of humble service, saying, I'm serving the living God where I am. And what does God do? He elevates him. He elevates him. He elevates him. You think about Esther as well. Esther's an extraordinary book. It begins with Artaxerxes' wife, Vashti, defying the rule of the king, and so he goes in search of a new wife. I don't know, it was like a kind of ancient version of Britain's Got Talent where they get all these women to line up and all kind of a Miss World thing and they'd all be prepared for it and then he'd choose a new wife in this, all this ceremony. And Esther is chosen. He doesn't know she's Jewish, but she's chosen. And you know, God uses her to save her nation, but how does he use her? Through her posture of service. She's in a broken system. She's in a, she's in a corrupt system. Yet what she does is she submits. And as she relentlessly submits to the authority that God has put over her, God's power works through her to save her nation. It's the same story of Joseph, just in a new version. I don't know how much we as Christians believe this. But Peter says it's for the name of Jesus. Here's a second reason. Because meekness is a display of faith. Meekness is one of the most misunderstood aspects of the Christian conduct. Many think of meekness as being weakness, don't they? So to describe someone as meek is not usually a compliment. It usually means that they're easily walked over because of their weakness and their timidity and their fear. Now, I grant that that kind of, that kind of attitude, that kind of posture is possible. I don't think that's what the Bible's talking about when it, when it advocates this, this meekness. I rather think that what meekness is in the New Testament is an understanding of strength under control. This is why you look at verse 18. What does he say? He says, Servants, be subject to your master with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Do you know what levels of self-control and strength and inner reserve of power that would have taken for a servant 
to have that not just in their conduct, but also in their heart. Where does that kind of strength come from? Especially in the face of injustice. And the answer is a profound faith in the God who watches over our souls. He says in verse 19, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Mindful of God, you can endure anything. You can be treated despicably and know how to conduct yourself as a believer when you trust him. I want to ask you, do you believe, when you think about your situation and some of the unfair or unjust or blatantly wrong situations that you are in or have experienced in life, do you believe that God is in control? That he is sovereignly in control of your life? Even in the face of those things. And more than that, do you believe that he cares for you? The last verse in this, chap- in this passage he says, you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, the pastor and bishop of your souls, the one who cares for you intimately and knows the very details of the circumstances of your life. That was the challenge for the Christians to believe when they faced all the things that seemed so wrong, so unfair, so unjust. Peter's saying, do you actually believe that God cares about you? This then really comes down to your view of God, doesn't it? If you believe in a small God, then your posture will be, I need to fight. I need to fight for my rights. I need to fight for justice. I need to fight for vindication or whatever it is that you feel that you need to fight for. But the Christian doesn't believe in a small God. The Christian believes in a God who is sovereign over the details of our lives and the circumstances and situations in which we have been put, often against our will. It's why when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What he's saying is, blessed are you who honor God in your posture because you will one day rule. Do you know how radical that is? I think this is part of the heart of what it means to be believers who are in exile. It's the very heart of exile living. We believe that we haven't yet arrived in God's perfect world. So we should not be surprised when we face the evil that's all around us. The person who's trying to swindle us. The unfairness, whatever it is that you're going through. People who don't see that this is the way it is, that we're in exile will be crushed when they experience the suffering in life because they think this life ought to be better. But we as Christians can buckle down and trust that the God is in control. Let me bring you to a final point. It's not only about guarding the name of Christ, and it's not only because you're expressing faith in him by your posture of meekness. Listen, here's a third thing. It's because in this experience, God's greatest priority is to make you more like the Jesus, the Savior, Jesus, who we follow. He wants to make you more like Christ. You ask, well, where does the power come from to live in this world 
with hearts that are really obedient to the things that Peter's saying, to be honoring of everyone around us. How can you be free in Christ, yet submit to broken systems, broken rulers, broken, uh, a broken world? How can you show honor when you want to criticize? And Peter says, listen, it's this. Jesus did it before you. He's your example. In verse 21, he says, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is what makes Christianity so unbelievably unique and potent, friends. It is not a religion of violence and conquest on the one hand, nor is it a religion of total powerless passivity on the other hand. It's a religion of subversive power. There's a book titled The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, which charts these first few centuries of the Christians who began as this tiny minority within a broken Roman Empire. And the church should not have grown. They had radically different morals from the world in which they lived, so they were despised for that. They had these secretive worship services which people misunderstood and thought they were doing all kinds of weird things like ritual sacrifices and orgies and all the rest of it. And despite, despite those things, the early church grew radi- with incredible speed and multiplication. By the time you finish the New Testament, there are churches in all the major cities, it seems, across, across the Mediterranean. A couple of centuries later, there are Christians beyond count. And the question is, how did that happen, even though the Christians adopted this posture that was not seeking to overthrow? And the answer is patience. As they sought to honor Christ... As they sought to submit to Christ, as they sought to embody a difference within their community that wasn't prevalent in the world around them, rather than trying to change the world, people were drawn to what the Christians were doing. And then this ferment happened. You ever fermented anything, made some sourdough or whatever? It's a beautiful process. It's slow to begin with, but after a while you can smell the alcohol byproducts and the, the, the gases that are growing and all this kind of stuff. It's a miracle of God, fermentation. It's how we get beer, it's how we get wine, it's how we get great bread. It's all the good stuff in life. The church, Jesus said, is like that. It's the yeast. It causes us fermentation. We don't change the world in the ways that we think we ought to change it. We change it by being like Christ. I think one of the questions that some of you will be wrestling with as I, as I commend what Peter's saying here is, well, does it work? You know, we, we naturally want to fight injustice where we see it. We want to struggle, well, we do struggle to honor those who are just not worthy, it would seem, of any kind of honor. You think about, you think about how easily criticism slips off the tongue for national leaders at the moment. Not to mention the people that you have to rub shoulders with on a day-to-day basis in your office. What he tells us here is this. Christ committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, 
he did not revile and return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Friends, I think that whether you get this or not will largely determine your sense of joy and satisfaction in the world in which we live. When you experience the brokenness of this life. In many ways, our response to this world shows where our hope really lies. Listen to this. Again, Elliot Clark. He says, when we suffer, if our collective Christian tone is complaint... If we constantly lament our loss of cultural influence or social standing, if we weep and mourn as if Jerusalem has fallen, when our chosen political agenda is overlooked, then we expose our true values. Those troubling circumstances have a way of unmasking our highest hopes. Sadly, far too often, they reveal our hopes have actually been in this present age and not in the one to come. In other words, how you respond, how you respond emotionally to the brokenness of the world that you are in reveals whether your hope is in this life or it's in the life to come with Christ. And the deepest reason why the Christians were joy-filled And why they could exist in this powerful ferment of community, which was a subculture within the greater broken world in which they live, is because they lived entrusting their lives to Christ. Friends, I want us to just bow our heads in prayer now. We are going to take communion and just respond in worship to this. But really, this this is about your relationship with Jesus above all. It's about whether you think he's the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Whether he means to do you good, even when you're experiencing the brokenness of the world in which we live. And friends, every doubt about his goodness can and should be erased whenever you eat the bread and drink the wine. Because not only did he embody the example of what it means to live in this meek posture, but he also, in that sacrifice of himself, proved to you once and for all his absolute commitment to you and to your good. Every doubt about the goodness of God should disappear when you, when you come back to the cross. So let's pray, shall we? Father, as your people, we are... We're conscious, Lord, of our deepest weakness, which is the weakness of faith. That we do not always believe that you are good and mean to do us good. So we think we have to take circumstances in our own hands. Father, we want to come to you, and I pray, Lord, that you lead us to repentance. I pray you lead us to a point where we can say, God, we know that you're sovereignly in control of our lives. Now teach us how to be like Jesus in the things that we're facing. We pray in your precious name. Amen. Amen.